On November 24, 2009, a paralyzed Belgian man who spent the past 23 years incorrectly diagnosed as being in a vegetative state was fully conscious and could hear everything around him the entire time. So it's a, a man in his, who was 23, he got in a car accident, he became an, got into a vegetative state. The doctors pronounced that he was, there was, he was not conscious, but he was alive. 23 years after that, Guy's 46 now. They experiment and now he, they find out that he was always conscious the entire time. The man, Rob Hoban, can finally communicate. Thanks to neurologist persistent research, doctors had assumed the 1983 crash that paralyzed Hoban, now 46, had also put him in a vegetative state. Awake, but not conscious of his surroundings. Hubin, a one-time engineering student and the martial artist enthusiast, was trapped in his own world. That is, until Dr. Stephen Lawrence of the University of Liege, using modern brain scanning technology, unavailable in the 1980s, saw that Hubin's brain lit up with near normal functioning when he was asked a question. Hubin had heard the doctors, nurses, family speaking <clears throat> in his room for decades. Listen to what he says, quote, I shall never forget the day when they discovered what was truly wrong with me. It was my second birth, end quote. Hubin told the German magazine, Dr. Spiegel, communicating via, he told this via communicating special keyboard. So this gentleman, 23 years old, accident, thought he was in a vegetative state. They have this new technology. They found out that he's not. He's been conscious for the, so just imagine for a second, for 23 years, Conscience, knowing what's going around, no one talking to you because they think that you're in a vegetative state and you can't do anything about it. Now, what did he say when, if, when they found out that he could talk and he was able to communicate? It was his what? His second birth. So a lot of things we can look into this. Number one, while to be grateful, right? This gentleman here was grateful that 23 years later, he can actually communicate in a vegetative state with his surroundings, right? But today we're going to talk about another paralytic. And this paralytic, for this man who was in a paralytical state for 23 years, his rebirth was when they found that he was conscious. The man described that this, this uh, so this, the man described that the discovery as a second birth was not even healed. He wasn't healed completely. And he was, he's still considered as a second birth. The man was thankful and giving his circumstances, he can teach us a lot of lessons. But today we will read of another paralytic man. In this case, he's not only completely healed, but more importantly, his sins were completely forgiven. Let's begin reading today's passage. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. Word of God says, Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. 
But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this beautiful passage that we're going to study today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, because not only you created us, but you gave us your word to reveal yourself to us, that we can study, meditate on it, live by it, be sanctified by it. Holy Spirit, illuminate us. Let us understand. Let us apply all the universal applications that you have for us today in our lives from this passage. Thank you. Help us see, uh, help us see, Lord, all that you have for us today. In your name we pray. Amen. So the theme, if you're writing notes, is Jesus Christ is God and forgives sins. Jesus Christ is God and forgives sins. Uh, An outline, four scenes of a miracle. We're going to go over four scenes of a miracle today. First is the setting, verses 1 through 2. Second is the argument, verses 3 through 6a. Then we have the miracle, verse 6b through 7. And then we have the worship, verse 8. So let's talk about what's happened so far. Matthew's arrangement of the last three miracle sets that we have discussed progressively showed Jesus' credentials as Messiah. First, we see physical healings. He healed a leper with a touch of his hand in Matthew 8, chapter 3, verse 3. He healed a centurion's servant without having seen the afflicted person, chapter 8, verses 13. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law with a serious fever, chapter 8, verses 15. Those are the physical miracles that we've seen thus far. Then he goes beyond physical afflictions and demonstrates his authority over Satan and over the earth, right? Casting out demons with a word in A16 and demonstrating his power over the great natural forces by stilling the storm in Galilee, verses 8, 26. And again, he demonstrates his spiritual authority over Satan when he delivers, like we learned last, last time, the two possessed man, the legion from the Gerardines. This now leads us to the third type of miracle that Jesus gives credit, that, that Matthew gives credit Jesus for, which is his Messiahship, the power to forgive sins. This is the third set of miracles that Matthew is recording. Healing, authority over Satan and the spiritual world, authority over our physical realm and earth, and the third set is the forgiving of sins. So, let's take a look at the setting. Verse 1, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. So, remember that after the Sermon on the Mount, he healed Peter's mother-in-law with the fever. And what happens the next day? We see in Matthew 18, 8, 8, 18, Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So, he, a lot of people are there. Remember, he's presenting he's doing all these miracles he has a crowd he has a following he's saying let's go somewhere else he goes he gets on a boat on the way there that's when he calms the storm brandon taught about uh, taught us about that then he gets to the the gadarenes and delivers the two possessed demon men over there and guess what what do they tell him over there what do they tell him what did they tell him when he when he took the legion out of the pigs what were the people in that area telling him in the gadarenes gadarenes Get, get out of here. Bye. We don't want to see you. And Jesus, he lives. He, he, he leaves the city, crossing the lake, honoring the request of the Gentiles in chapter 8, verses 34. We know that his own city is Capernaum. Okay? We know this because in Matthew's and Mark's account of this event, chapter 2, verse 1 says, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. 
Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. Guys, what is the theme of Matthew? Can everybody tell me the theme of Matthew? Jesus is king. Who is the intended audience of the letter? Anybody tell me? Yes. The Jews, yes. Matthew wants to make sure that his readers know that the majority of Jesus' miracles took place up until this point in this city. Okay? Why? He later states in chapter 11, verse 20 through 24. Everyone go there real quick. Matthew 11, chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Remember, we're talking about the setting, his own city, Capernaum. Chapter 11, verse 20, the word of God says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah, which sorry, in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the, the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why is Jesus telling this to his readers? Sorry, why is Matthew writing this to his Jewish uh, recipients? Why is Jesus saying this to this, these cities? Anybody want to crack it? Give it a crack? Yes, give it a crack. Because Capernaum is a Jewish city, and uh, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon are all uh, Gentile cities. Why, why does Jesus say to them it's going to be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah? Why? It says it there if you read it. Because they did not repent knowing the miracles that Jesus did. Basically, these people saw the Messiah performing miracles. The man, the, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Matthew's telling them, this is the Messiah. If he can scream through this letter, he'd be, this is the Messiah. Believe in him. He is king. They did not repent. They did not believe. Having Jesus right there in front of them. And Jesus tells them, you knew the truth and you didn't repent. It's going to be worse for you. How many times have I heard you, you heard me saying that this coming to youth group, coming to Sunday school, is one of the most dangerous places you can ever come to? How many of you heard me say that before? Coming to Sunday school, coming to youth group, coming to church, it's the most dangerous thing you can ever do for your life. Why? Because you are preached the truth here. The truth is given to you here. And if you decide to ignore it, you can't say no one told you. It's going to be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is telling you, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah was bad, like brimstone from fire. It was done, demolished, not standing today. And he's saying it's going to be worse for them, worse for us who blatantly ignore and do not bow our knees to Jesus Christ. So he really wants his Jewish brothers to be saved. He's telling them, don't be damned like the ones who saw the Messiah perform the miracles. I have told you before. Uh, this is, I already said this. Sorry. So what happened when he got to his city? Many people heard of it and began forming crowds again. It's going to happen. Jesus left because there were crowds. Now he's come back. And we know that Mark said that crowds began to form again. Why are crowds forming again, guys? Why are they forming? Yes. Yeah, because they know Jesus is healing. He's back. Oh, man, I, my, my, my tia, my aunt, she needs, she needs healing. Let's bring her, you know. My uncle, my cousin, my aunt, you know, let's go. It's a party. They got healed. 
I say that because in our Latin culture, everything's a party. I'm sorry, it is, you know. Jesus is here. Let's bring the music, bring the barbecue, bring everyone. Let's just have a party with Jesus. Verse 2, and they brought to him a paralytical, a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. They, who is they? They are four men who were mentioned in both Mark and Luke's account of the miracle. They lowered the paralytic down from a roof so that Jesus could heal him. Mark 2, verses 3 to 4 says, And they became, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. That's Mark's account. And then we have Luke's account, chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of, in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles. This stretcher, with his stretcher, into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So guys, a paralytic and lying in bed is basically, he's disabled, all right? He can't walk. What was it like to live as a paralyzed man during Jesus' time? Anybody tell me, give me a guess. What was it like to live like a paralytic person during that time period? Yes. You, yes. Okay, why? What's the stigma behind what they have with, with the, the, the correlation behind sickness? Yes, right? Oh, what did he, what sin did he commit or his parents commit for him to be in that state that he is? Right? So not only do you have to deal with the state that you're in, being a paralytic, but also the guilt of the sin that you or a parent committed that got you in that state. John 9, verses 1 and 2 says, As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? His man or his... Who sinned? This man or his parents? That he would be born blind. That's a biblical reference of why, what, what they were thinking of the time. But Jesus saw something. Something that only he can see, as he has 100% God and 100% man at this time. Seeing their faith. In all three accounts... Let's go back to the before that. So there were four men. None of the accounts say friends. For some reason, ever since I was in Sunday school, they've taught you that they were his friends. It doesn't say it, all right? Let's just speculate and imagine this is not, uh, what's the word? Um, what I'm about to say, this is not inspired. This is not, uh, what's the word that Tom says when he preaches that? Well, he's going to say something that's not really, but let's. Divine imagination? Or no, no, no. <laughs> Sanctified, not divine. Yeah, so let's just imagine for a second, right? It has to be friends, I mean, or neighbors, somebody that deals with him, right? De helping him get dressed, helping him get food, family members that care for him, friends that really want him. Who's going to go on top of a roof carrying a guy? You can fall. We know uh, Eutychus died in, 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 in Acts from a third floor, and Paul raised him, you know, from the dead. But things can happen. Digging in a hole, right? In the middle of a roof, what if everything collapsed? You know what happened to me here in this hand? Right? I was in a roof, like second floor. I was, I was brooming and cleaning it, and the roof just cracked open on me. And I landed on my hand, and thank God I can still move, but it's all robotic. No, I'm just kidding. Anyways, <laughs> no one's, the story is true. I'm, it's not robotic. But no one's going to get up on the roof like that. So let's speculate that they were his friends, okay? Just side note. In all three accounts, Jesus mentions seeing their faith. 
not just of the paralytic, but of his friends as well. They went through the trouble because they knew that Jesus could heal their friend. How can, as an application question, how, can, how many of us can actually say that that's how much we care for our friends? That's how much we care for our loved ones. Knowing that Jesus has a power to heal. What will we do? How much effort will we give to make this happen? And I want you to think about that. Because we're going to get back to that. Also, these, these friends, they were, they were, it's all, it was all about the paralytic. I mean, they saw the crowd. Everyone was going in and healed. I'm pretty sure these four guys had somebody, a family member, somebody that was sick. It doesn't mention that they actually asked Jesus for anything. They were just there literally for the care and for the well-being of their friend. So, guys, you know that in the account of Matthew, there is no, Matthew doesn't record all the details of his friends putting him through a roof. Why is that? Because for Matthew at this point, he doesn't want to hone into the miracle. He wants to hone in what's coming up next. He wants to hone in another aspect of Jesus' messiahship. That's what he's introducing. That's what he's writing is for. Commentator writes, but Matthew again omits descriptive details, even the unforgettable picture of the hole in the roof. This time, however, it's not the miracle itself to which he is thus drawing attention. The dialogue which accompanies it, which will introduce a new aspect of Jesus' authority. Matthew wanted us to hone in on the new aspect of Jesus' authority. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Take courage in the Greek to have confidence, to be a good courage. Son is an affectionate form of address. Sins, all your transgressions, are forgiven, paid, released, pardoned. Jesus showed his compassion to this paralytic. Not just by healing him, but by forgiving his sins. You might ask, why did Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Instead of, son, you are healed, get up and go, your sins are forgiven. Why did he say your sins are forgiven first? Because we know up until this point, he, that's what he's done. He's healed. Matthew uh, chapter 4, verses 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Matthew 8, chapter 2, verses 3, And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Matthew 8, chapter 13, And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Chapter 8, verses 16, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. So why would he say your sins are forgiven first in this aspect, in this moment? Well, the next verse tells us. He wanted to show another aspect of his divinity to his followers. He also knew he had scribes in the audience, which brings us to the second scene of the miracle, the argument. So he knew what he was doing. This is not just accidental. He purposely chooses his words. He purposely chooses, your sins are forgiven. Verse 3, in the argument. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. Scribes, what is a scribe? A learned person who was able to read and write, probably with a focus also on teaching and the meaning of reading documents. Blasphemes, to slander a deity or something sacred. How do I know that, what, why were they thinking it was blasphemy? Can anybody tell me why? 
Why do they think it was blasphemy? Yes, sir. He was claiming to be God. Because only God can forgive sins. Good job, Toby. Luke 5, chapter 21 says, The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark 2, chapter, that was Luke's account. In Mark's account, why did this man, this is, these are the, the scribes speaking, why did this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were astonished at his claim. Guys, this is the first time in Matthew where he butted, heads butt, um, um, yes, butts heads with the religious leaders of his time. This is the first time there's actually like an altercation between them. Why? Until this point, the scribes were like, oh, he's a prophet. Prophets, oh, yeah, we learned Oh, I remember that, you know, uh, Elisha, he healed uh, Naaman, you know. He healed that king. Oh, yeah, they healed. So there were any, there's no problems there. Yeah, go ahead and heal. We're still seeing who he is. But when he comes and says, your sins are forgiven, now they're thinking, oh, hold on a second. Uh, this, this Jesus guy, he just took it to another level. And you know what? Especially in their self-righteousness, right? They believe that you can earn God's favor by being good. So here comes Jesus, says your sins are forgiven. What are they thinking? Not only are they thinking, who is this guy? Only God can forgive sins. But what are they also thinking in their self-righteousness? Is this good God? He's going to play out all of our, uh, all of our mistakes. Yes. All of our mistakes. Yes, but also... <laughs> Why would he forgive someone who is unworthy of forgiving? Why would he forgive someone who deserves what they got? They sin, they deserve to be paralytic. We're good people, right? This is the Pharisee, the scribes talking. So they don't understand why would he forgive sins to the unworthy, knowing that, my friends, we are all unworthy. All of us are. There's none righteous, not even one. We need God's mercy. We need for him to forgive our sins. Especially if you think you're so good. Especially us that struggle with self-righteousness. So when he said your sins are forgiven, the scribes in their mind, you know what they had? The most fundamental tenet of the Jewish faith, which is found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Go ahead and everyone turn to Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verses 4. We're all there? Let's all read it together. One, two, three. Hear, O Israel. The Lord. Which verse? Sorry, chapter, verse four. Chapter, chapter six, verse four. Is everyone there? Let's read it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is a jealous God. Come on. It's not there? No. Sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Let's leave it there. It's a little side note because it's from um, a commentary that I. The Lord is a jealous God and willing to give this glory to another. That's Isaiah 48 11. I'm sorry. So let's just leave it there. Deuteronomy 6 4. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's what they had in their mind, the scribes. They're like, hold on. Only God is one and he can forgive sins. He's saying that he forgives sins. Is he calling himself God? Calling him. And that's why they're saying he's blasphemy. He's blaspheming. 
So we have the scene, the setting, right? He's back in his hometown, right? Some friends bring in a paralytic through the roof. He, Jesus tells him, you know, uh, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. All right? And then the Pharisees, the second scene, which the, the scribes, the second scenes are like, who is this guy who's saying these things, right? But God, being 100%, but Jesus being 100% God, knew what they were thinking. And he saw the faith of the paralytic and his friends. And then he says in verse 4, Jesus, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? The Lord knows our thoughts. He knows everything that we think. Nothing escapes him. Psalm 44, 21. Would not God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Psalm 139.2 You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. It's nothing you can hide from Jesus. Nothing the scribes could have hidden from Jesus at that moment. He knew what they were thinking. Heart. Is it literal heart? What is, when the Bible mentions heart, what does it mention? What does it mean? Can a heart think? No, it can't. The locus of a person's thoughts Volition, emotions, and knowledge of, from right and wrong, conscience, understood as the heart. Evil in, this, in the Greek here is abusive words falsely spoken that damage a person's reputation. Thinking evil in your heart. So when the Bible mentions heart, it's talking about the mind. The inside of a man from the abundance of the heart speaks to what? The mouth. It is from the inside that one is defiled, not from the outside. Jesus then says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? We're still in the confrontation, the second scene of the miracle. Guys, what's easier? What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? Really? That's easier? Get up and walk is easier. To say, not to do. To say, to tell someone. Think about it. What's easier? To say your sins are forgiven, where there's no visible way that you can prove it, or to say it to a paralytic who's been paralyzed the entire life, never walked in their life ever, knows and doesn't know how to, you know, you guys walk in and do things because as a little baby, you were trained. And you, you first drag yourself on the floor, then you crawl, then you walk and you hit your head every day. That's what happens until you're three. And then four, you start, you know, running and then... It just doesn't happen like that. By the way, that's the worst age when you start walking. Oh, that's when your lower back starts to hurt. Especially four, you start hurting yourself. So, can you, that's, what's easier? What is easier? Your sins are forgiven is easier. Because no one, you can say it, and you don't have to back it up by anything. No one, they can believe you or not, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Commentator writes, while effective forgiveness is no easy matter, it is certainly easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say rise and walk, as the former requires no visible result, while the latter lays one open to ridicule if nothing happens. If then Jesus' word is effective for the latter, they may assume that he was not bluffing about the former. So kind of like he says, your sins are forgiven, then the paralytic is healed and he gets up. What does that give Jesus? 
What does that give him? Credibility. What's another name for credibility that we're looking for here? What does that give Jesus? It's in the next verse. What? Authority. Authority. Yes. Verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he's telling you, you I'm not bluffing here. I'm God. I'm Jesus. I'm, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. And to prove that I am and what I say is true. He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Why is Matthew writing this letter, guys? What's the theme again? Jesus is king. He's telling his Jewish readers, the man who can heal and knows your thoughts can also forgive sins. Therefore, he is God. Therefore, he is king. He is the long-awaiting Messiah. Please believe in him. Please repent and believe. This leads to the, the third scene of, the, of this scenario, the actual miracle. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got, and he got up and went home. Got up is, he, he stood on his own, especially emphasizing your own agency to act, okay? This is not something that, oh, they helped him get up and they helped him kind of like, you know, oh, come on, let's help you, you know, walk and we'll carry you. No, he got up. This is Jesus we're talking about. And remember, what did we talk about last time I taught you guys? Let's not use the word miracle lightly, right? We can't use that word lightly. A miracle is a miracle. A miracle is God going against the laws that he created to show his glory. This man who was paralytic got up, took him a while. He had to like warm up. Immediately. Mark 2, verse 12. And he got up. And immediately picked up the pallet and went in the sight of everyone. So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Luke's account. Immediately he got up before them. Immediately. And picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So far we have seen that the miracles that Jesus performed have been for his own glory. He was willing, right? Proving a point to those around him that a Gentile had more faith than all Israel when he healed the centurion's slave. To demonstrate that he was the son of God, he, the son of man, he forgives sins. And this leads up to the last scene of the miracle and all the miracles that he, and he and he's done so far. The worship. But when the crowd saw, verse 8, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to man. Let me, but let me, awestruck here is fear, reverence. To regard with feelings of respect and reverence, considered hallowed or exalted in awe. They were like, man, this guy not only heals, but he has the authority to forgive sins. Let us worship him. Let us fear him because he is God. This leads us to our application for tonight. Number one, be relentless in your faith. 
for what Jesus can do? Can you say you have the same faith and zeal for your friends and family? These men were relentless because they had faith in Jesus. We should be relentless in our prayers for the unsaved. I want you to think of something right now. Think of every member in your family that is not saved. Think of every neighbor that is not saved. Think of every friend that is not saved. You should be relentless in your prayer. You should go boldly before the Lord with faith, knowing that He has the power to forgive sins. Our prayer should be that. Forgive their sins. Save them from their sins, O Lord. Please. With supplication to God. Being boldly. Go before the throne of God. We have that privilege to call Him Abba Father. How are we with praying for our loved ones to be saved? Our friends to be saved? Our teachers to be saved? This is not a game. Our Christian life is not a game. We are, if we call our, ourselves Christians and we're representatives of the Most High, that is part of our duty to go and preach the gospel. To preach it, but to pray, to be relentless, to have faith that Jesus can do it. Just like the friends of the paralytic had faith that Jesus could heal his friend. Number two, know that God knows your thoughts. You can't hide anything from him. You can't keep that in mind when you have secret sins that no one knows about. Oh, no. Jesus knows about them. And take it to the bank. The truth will always come out. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit will not let you sleep until that sin is uncovered. That's a, that's a great thing of knowing you are a believer. The conviction of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. Number three, this is crucial. Know that the second person of the Godhead, Christ the Son, is God. We believe in a triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is the Jesus that we preach here. That is the Jesus that we read about in the Bible. That is the Jesus that can save. So when you say, I ask you, do you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus. I believe in the triune God, Jesus. Say it like that. Because there's a lot of Jesuses out there that are being preached that are not Jesus. The Jesus of, of the Jehovah Witnesses, the Jesus of the Mormons, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. They don't consider him God. Know that Jesus is God. He was 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. The God-man. There are some denominations in Christianity that preach that he was not 100% God. That is false teaching. And they say that to justify the doctrines that they want to push through in their churches. Oh, since Jesus was man, you can, you're also a man. You can do the miracles that Jesus did. No, that is false. That is wrong. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Never forget that. And always emphasize that. You believe in a triune God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Triune God. That is, that is a pinnacle of our faith. Last. Guys, are you awestruck of Jesus' ability to forgive sins? 
Are you awestruck? Are you, does, does it bring you to your knees to glorify God for what he has done? What has he done? Well, let me tell you real quick. Well, see, because God created all of us, he is the one who makes the rules. How we are to live. As humans, we broke those laws and disobeyed and sinned against a holy God. What we deserve for doing that is eternal wrath and punishment. However, people think that by being good, they can earn enough favor with God to escape that punishment. But guess what the standard is? Perfection. Matthew 5.48 Let's say, let's say you maintain the entire law, but stumble in one point, you're made guilty of all. That's James 2.10. The Bible also says that there's none righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter what you do, no matter what you, how good you think you are, you cannot save yourself. It is impossible for you to do so. But there's good news, the gospel. Gospel means good news. Jesus, the Son of God, indwelled among the creation he created, humbled himself to become human and live that perfect life you and me can never live. He died on the cross, paid the price for our sins. He resurrected from the dead and is now seated on the right hand of God. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The Bible says that if you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave, you will have eternal life. The Bible says if you believe and put your faith only in Jesus for salvation and repent from your sins and make him Lord of your life, you will be saved. He can forgive sins. That is the great news. He can forgive sins. That is why the crowds were awestruck. And that is why you should be awestruck today. If you have not called out, to, called out to Jesus to save you, I beg that you do it right now, even as we speak. Don't let another moment pass before calling and making him Lord of your life. Don't be Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. You have the ability to call upon his name to be saved. Each and every one of you is responsible for your own salvation. Your parents will not save you. Just because they're men and women of God and they go to church, that does not save you. Just because you come to church and you've done it every Sunday, that does not save you. By grace we are saved and this is not of us. It is a gift from God so that no man may boast. Stop putting your faith in yourself and put it only in Jesus Christ. Put it in Jesus Christ, the one that can forgive sins. If you want to talk about this more in detail, please talk to one of the leaders after. We're always here, especially for the gospel. Guys, the purpose of reading the scriptures is to be sanctified, but also to always and never forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we, that is, that is, that is the greatest news that you can ever hear. And by hearing it, you're responsible for it. Let us pray. Thank you, Holy Father, for this day. Thank you, Father, for your word. 
Thank you for your spirit that convicts us. Thank you, Father, for being powerful enough to forgive sins, for being God, for forgiving our sins. Thank you, God, because we obtain salvation only through you. Thank you, God, for your word. Let us be relentless, Father. Let us pray fervently, Lord, for those that are unsaved, especially our family members, especially our friends, especially our neighbors that don't know you. Let us pray with the faith that these four men had. Let us pray fervently. Let us pray with passion. Let us pray believing that you are capable of doing so because you are God and only you can save. Give us the conviction to preach your gospel. Give us the burden to do so at every moment that we can. Help us be the salt and light of this world. Help us proclaim your good news to all who we meet and come encounter to, Father. Thank you for your son. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for this group. I pray that you can sanctify this group, that they can grow in your word and the knowledge of your will, Lord, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they can be, bear good fruit, Father. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.